All right, well, let's get started. Great. So thanks for joining us, uh, Pastors Positive Mental Health Institute. As you can see, another fantastic guest, and, and I can say fantastic because he is fantastic, uh, Dr. Chris Adams um, from Biola University. And I know that you had a uh, school within Biola, I think. And so I'll let you tell us about that in just a moment. But if you find this beneficial, please like and share it. You can check uh, some things out at ppmhi.org. And I'll have uh, areas for you to make comments and contact information also in the comment section. So I can't wait for you guys to hear uh, from Dr. Dr. Chris Adams. So Chris, if you just take a moment to kind of introduce yourself, years of ministry, you know, your official title sure. all that you do, and we'll just sit back and, and be blessed by what you have to share. Sure. Well, thank you. Thank you for your kind introduction and, and the opportunity to, to be with you and your listeners. Um, I super excited when I first got your email, just to see the title of, of what you're doing. Um, so the Institute for Pastor's Positive Mental Health is kind of speaking my language. So you had me right then and there at the title. Um, I think we're very like-minded um, and similar hearts as I've gotten to know you. So it's really a, a privilege to be with you. Um, I uh, I grew up as a pastor's kid, um, of a pastor's kid. So I'm third generation. Uh, and uh, my grandfather was a pastor of mostly what I like to call small clergy killing kinds of congregations, um, at least for two-thirds of his ministry career anyway. And uh, one of my heroes in ministry for sure. And he he unfortunately died young of a heart attack. And I'm convinced that a lot of that had to do with ministry stress. People weren't researching this, you know, and talking about the physiology of stress and the impact of that on clergy's physical health and mental health and all that stuff back in those days. Um, but my dad's been in music ministry um, all of my life. And because of his his various roles that he took on in different capacities. Um, I found myself uh, in lots and lots of pastors' homes across a real wide range of denominational traditions, really throughout my childhood, adolescence, into college years and beyond. And um, and that was a wonderful exposure to all the amazing people that are out there um, being obedient to God's call on their lives and uh, shepherding God's people and, and all that that means the joys of that and the stresses of that. And so saw a lot of great examples of different ministry approaches and also heard a lot of common pain, I think, growing up from pastors and spouses and pastors' kids. And in retrospect, I think maybe the Lord was shaping something in me that would later become a part of the work that that I do, that I know you do as well uh, on a daily basis as we journey with, with leaders and try to be an encouragement. Uh, and then I have a number of years in pastoral ministry myself as an associate pastor at a large church and then in university chaplaincy for almost a decade. And uh, through the course of that time, became more and more interested in uh, clergy health kinds of things and uh, ended up uh, studying at Fuller Seminary uh, with a couple of mentors who had really been pioneers in studying the mental health of clergy, Dr. Archibald Hart, the late Dr. Hart, um, sort of primary among those, and ended up becoming a psychologist, specializing in working with clergy and missionaries and their families, both on the research side, and then also on how do we actually practically help people um, through counseling, coaching, leadership development, formation, all those kinds of things. Uh, so I've been at, at Biola for a year and a half now, um, and I am in Rosemead Graduate School of Psychology. Uh, which is one of the premier integration programs uh, in the U.S., uh, Christian psychology programs. 
And it's been a great fit because Rosemead has a long history of supporting pastors and missionaries through research and clinical work um, and uh, just enormous support from the university for the Flourishing and Ministry Project, which I know we'll talk a little bit more about uh, that's ongoing. And um, uh, yeah, it's a real, real joy. So I've got a great team here, great group of doctoral students all doing research around these kinds of things. And uh, it's a lot of fun. Awesome. Well, it's good to have fun. Uh, so you, you'd spent some years in pastoral ministry. So I'd just like to explore that a little bit. One of the things we find in, in the work that you've done, the work that I've done, is there's kind of this commonality um, about how people go into ministry mm. and how that that actually um, fuels uh, what they do. And sometimes they have to draw from that because, uh, again, pastors most of the time see it as a sacred call from God and sacred work. Which makes some challenges. So, just tell me about that journey a little bit for you. Sure. Yeah. Happy to. So, I, I think part of it, I, I can't ever remember a time in my life when I wasn't aware of believing in God and having a sense of God's presence in my life, which I'm really thankful for, um, even from early childhood. And having grown up in a ministry family, just had exposure, of course, to my grandfather and his stories and my dad's work. And we've got lots of other relatives and extended family that are theology professors, pastors, missionaries. And so I just kind of grew up around a lot of that and I think was inspired by that. Saw some really healthy examples of that, thankfully, um, growing up. And uh, remember distinctly being in church on a Sunday night. I grew up in Nashville most of my formative years, and we went to church like four times on Sunday, it seemed like <laughs> back in those days. But it was an awesome church, so I loved going. Nice. And uh, my senior pastor, who is still the the iconic pastor in my heart and mind and just such a formative relationship for me um, preached a sermon on a Sunday night about the call to vocational ministry. And uh, at the end of the service, there was an invitation to pray at the altar. And I, I just had this incredibly powerful encounter uh, with God speaking to me and nudging me that direction. So I went forward and prayed at the altar and then he spent a good hour with me in his office with my parents after church, uh, just talking with me about what I had just experienced. And uh, he was affirming of that, took seriously that God would speak to a 12-year-old um, or or a child, um, even younger, and affirmed that. And, and he, he really nurtured that over the years. He would check in with me and um, uh, kind of give me a little glimpses into what it was like to do what he did and that kind of thing. And uh, then got into college at a Christian university and had great mentors there and it just continued to be affirmed. Um, so there was both kind of that lightning bolt moment uh, as well as uh, a lot of nurturing around that from uh, from my parents. I think my parents were both uh, excited and affirming and also afraid uh, for me to go into church ministry because they knew how difficult that can be and how painful. But um, they've been super supportive, uh, my entire life, which is, which has been really a blessing and just had a lot of great mentors by the grace of God, um, that have really, really shaped me deeply. And one of the things, um, that that's been interesting to me on the research side, as we've done this flourishing and ministry research now for over a decade is listening to lots and lots of call stories from pastors, from evangelical mainline tradition, Catholic priests on the whole, whole gamut. Um, and what we found is there really are kind of two main pathways for people um, to enter into vocational ministry. Both involve having a, a lightning bolt kind of moment or defining 
moments, maybe several, several major events where they really felt uh, God speaking to them, guiding them uh, this direction. Um, but the, the pastors that have just had that lightning bolt moment or lightning bolt moment, excuse me, um, and have not had the rich formational process around that over an extended period of time tend not to be flourishing as much as those that, that had both. And sometimes the folks that have had both were intentional about that or the denomination that they are in is intentional about that formational process. And sometimes it was just sort of present by the grace of God um, in their lives in some way. And uh, having both that, those really defining moments when people really know that they know that they know that that's God leading them into this work as well as um, a, a process around that seemed to be key yeah. to flourishing long-term. Well, for sure. And what's interesting is, uh, by the way, best testimony ever is what you just shared as I grew up just knowing that God was real. I grew up in the church. Mm -hmm. I, you know, often we look for these, especially with some uh, traditions I've been involved in, we're looking for this. Oh, I was, you know, on the streets and, and yeah. God sent an angel, which is great. I love those stories too, but yeah. I always find it refreshing when I hear, yeah, I was raised in the church and I find um, as me who has been raised in the church and I'm a generational uh, servant in the church, my, my grandfather, I grew up with my grandfather leading music in the church and uh, awesome. my great grandmothers and grandfathers were both uh, pastors and, and um, I find wow. it very beneficial and my brother's a pastor so anyway you know i guess we didn't have anything better to do no i'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but i find it interesting to, to similar to what your story is is how good that is for us to understand church culture because the yeah. organization of the church though it is an organization doesn't function function like a secular organization that's right as much as we try to make it um but <laughs> you know at times because yeah. you're dealing with spiritual matters and that's right the real intimate part of people's lives. I mean, that's right. You can talk to them about anything else. You start talking about their spiritual lives, and now you're now you're treading a you dangerous ground. And so, um, I find that fantastic. And so, uh, tell us a little bit more about this flourishing ministry. I love the work that you're doing there, but I think that I want more people to know. So, tell me a little bit about it. Well, thank you for that opportunity. And just to to piggyback on what you were just saying. Um, I, I really am convinced churches operate more like a, a family system uh, than any other sort of public institution or entity. And part of that's because we use familial language, mm -hmm. you know, father and son, um, friend of the Trinity, of course, and then uh, brother and sister in Christ. And it just kind of evokes kind of family systems types of dynamics that are always kind of at work. And, and um, one of the most helpful things I think for me as a pastor actually was, was learning some basic systems theory kinds of things just to understand the, the emotional processes and relational processes that uh, are really the undercurrent of what's going on in a lot of churches or maybe all churches. And when there's conflict, people point to all the wrong things. It's not really about the thing people think it's about. It's about some historical thing or underlying anxiety or other all kinds of things. So that has really led us to uh, think more about ecosystem care and ecosystem health in the flourishing ministry project. Um, I'm, I'm actually kind of moving away from self-care language for individual clergy, not that that's not important, but it kind of implies that that's all that needs to happen. And it's sort of all on the pastor to somehow, you know, manufacture a healthy congregation. Certainly healthy leadership is vital to that, but it's more than that. There's more that needs to happen there in the environment and the ecosystem 
Um, there are best practices, things we can point to that uh, church boards, ministry teams, denominational leaders can do to set the kinds of conditions within which a leader can flourish. And so we're we're focusing more on that. But this project uh, is uh, is over a decade old and was started by a good friend of mine, Dr. Matt Bloom, and I'm very indebted to him and his work, um, who was a researcher at the University of Notre Dame. And he he had studied well-being at work and helping professions for about 20 years um, with the hope that uh, we could help people, the people helpers, help them flourish and last longer in their work and maybe learn things from people that are in really intense, complicated people helping jobs like pastors, and yet seem to be flourishing somehow, even in the midst of all the complexities and stresses and strains, what can we learn from those people that can help all helping professions and then also help everybody um, with well-being at work um, in a more general kind of way. And uh, Matt's wife, Kim, who's wonderful, is a um, Methodist pastor, has been in a variety of roles her entire career. And so he's lived life as a clergy spouse and had that unique perspective as well and decided to focus on on studying clergy. And uh, that started over 10 years ago. Uh, we've got somewhere north of 20,000 clergy currently in the database and growing and uh, hundreds and hundreds of in-depth interviews as well um, and have developed several things out of that. One is a flourishing and ministry app, and we're currently uh, in the process of of developing and launching the 2.0 version of the app. So some of your listeners may have been familiar with the original one. And then the new one will be coming out here in 2024 fairly soon. And uh, the research is still ongoing, but we've also developed a flourishing ministry coaching program. So we have a coaching certification that is a training uh, people can go through that uh, is accredited by the International Coaching Federation, which kind of the gold standard in the coaching world for best practice and coaching competencies that are based on research and so forth. And then we also have a network of people that have been through our training. So a network of flourishing and ministry coaches that can provide individual and or group coaching to ministry leaders to come alongside them. And it's more focused on holistic formation um, and well-being and how that connects to effective leadership than it is uh developing pastoral skill per se. There's a lot of really great coaching out there for specific kinds of skill development and leadership, and that's important and needed. We're more focusing on well-being and formation uh, in a holistic way, um, and, and that sometimes gets neglected in the busyness of ministry or often gets neglected, even in seminary training. Yeah. And uh, yet we find that the it's the emotional and social stresses that are what lead to people leaving ministry prematurely or having other kinds of struggles that impair their effectiveness. And so we're, we're trying to do preventative work um, and sort of go upstream from the crises if we can. Yeah. And that's really, um, you know, one of the things that I try to do is, you know, people ask me, yeah, yeah I was in, I was approached by an insurance company, a Christian insurance mm. company, and we started talking and, and, um, you know, I though I'd love to partner with them, they're looking at crisis management, like the pastors completely burn out and they're right. And I said, you know, really, my work is um, after they start getting to health, then we can start putting in some preventative measures. But I'm, I'm like, how do we get this into the hands of yes. 
of church leadership um, and congregations before that happens. Is, and that's I right. think that's what kind of your direction is. How do we do yes. this? And then uh, Dr. Greg Walton, who I interviewed a few a few weeks ago, is from Grace Place Wellness, and they're part mm-hmm. of the CMS church. And that's what they're starting to shift to really look that's how great. to be preventative. Um, you know, and I think, you know, the awareness is something that's interesting. So if you, if you say, um, you know, you're from a psychology department uh, and, uh, you know, sometimes we can find some pushback on that. And so sure, of course, speak a minute about that, because in the, in the um, presentations that I've done, I, I definitely see this, this um, difference uh, in demographic of age group of, of receptiveness, uh, you uh-huh. know, you were using words like well-being, resilience, and uh, you were even used the word psychology. Uh, and I find that when we talk about mental health, and, yeah. and I, I like that you're shifting from self-care. I, I've kind of adopted a model of steward care just for the mind of the pastor, yeah. giving us something to steward. And it's easier yeah. for us to kind of almost, I don't want to separate ourselves from ourselves, but but self-care is hard for pastors because yes. we feel guilty that we're taking yeah. time from the, the congregation. So anyway. Yeah, um, no, I, I like that stewardship lens a lot. I've used that too, because it, it self-care can kind of unintentionally connote self-indulgence or being selfish or self-centered. And we're not talking about that. What we are talking about is stewardship of the greatest tool God's given people for ministry, which is, which is them. Uh, themselves and how do we steward that so taking care of yourself is actually doing something for the sake of the right. work the mission and the kingdom work that god's called you to uh so anyway but just preaching to the choir but love no, no and love that's that good. love that shift because yeah. i think it's a really helpful one well we're supposed to you know ephesians 4 build one another up in love and yeah, and i think that um you know that includes you know leadership saying hey pastor are you uh, i was go- I, I golf with a, a pastor during the summer and he's a him mean, he's 77 or whatever and uh still pastoring and all of it and and he's like man i got to do this more and we're in his hometown and we're and i said well, why don't you just go in the mornings or something you know don't go to the office till like 10 or 11 he goes well you know i i want to be available and it's a small church i'm like is your cell phone on <laughs> I mean, I've heard him take calls and I said, you know, you're, you're five minutes from the church on the golf course, just do it, you know, but we feel guilty yeah. for, because right. we see it, like you said, as self-indulgence and, uh, right. and, and, and shirking our, our responsibility. We just go sit in the office and twiddle our thumbs maybe, but anyway. Right. Um, so again, how would you address someone who are those different demographics yeah. that struggle with psychology and in, in the church anyway? No, it's a great question. And um, what, one of the things just to specifically piggyback on what you were just saying that I find that that church boards don't often understand and even pastors themselves haven't maybe thought about all the implications of is what we call role immersion, um, which which is being in a role 24-7. Um, and pastors are very unique in that way. There maybe are some other helping professions that approximate it, like maybe family physician when they're on call, maybe social worker in some ways. Um, but it's very unique to be related to as your role 24 seven and, and at least in other people's minds, be available 24 seven um, and be omnipresent um, like God or something, you know, um, or om- omniscient or always available. Um, and so thinking through the, the implications of that, even just for stress management is often something that's off the radar under the radar. And that's where we see a lot of the issues show up. And so 
that's where psychology can be helpful, I think, in in giving us uh, some insight into what it means to be human. How did God design us and create us? And uh, what are the practices that we know will will boost well-being um, if we practice them on a regular basis? And what's fascinating to me uh, is that currently in, in the, the movement in social science known as positive psychology, uh, which is sort of studying what's right with healthy people, and in our case, healthy leaders, uh, many of the practices that research is affirming are ancient Christian spiritual practices. They're not new to the Christian faith, even if science is quote unquote discovering them, um, they're not really new practices. So for example, things like silence, solitude, gratitude practices, there are many, many things that uh, have been a part of the Christian faith for centuries that uh, are helping human beings flourish as it turns out. Um, and, uh, and so when we look at that conversation between faith and psychology, um, I think one of the things that that I always like to say, first of all, my, my pastoral identity is more important to me than my psychologist identity. And so I really want to start from a pastoral place, what's going to be edifying to the church um, for the sake of the world, for the sake of God's mission in the world. And uh, um, th there's a lot to be skeptical of in psychology. So I think the people that push back on it actually have a really valid point and we don't want to um, take any given psychological theory wholesale without thinking about it critically. Where does it resonate with, with biblical principles and Christian theology and where does it not, um, and not adopt psychology as our primary worldview or system of meaning making, but do what, what is called theology directed integration, which is where we're starting with scripture and theology and church history and we're rounding out our understanding of some things um, with psychology and social science, but but not letting psychology become the religion, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and that that takes a nuanced, in some ways, complex conversation, um, but it, it can, it's a very fruitful one, in my experience. Yeah, I kind of look at it as, uh, you know, the physicians, you know, there are good physicians and bad physicians. There's some yeah. that that promote certain practices that maybe um, isn't the most beneficial, uh, but yet if you got a broken leg, you're you're going to the doctor. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. So, uh, you know, well, I think it's kind of important. <laughs> well, and the other the other piece with that, and this is what you know, I talk a lot with graduate students about is if if you look at integration of psychology and theology is in some ways maybe not even the right word because that assumes you're integrating two totally separate things. But if you look at a lot of psych psychological theories, they have a lot of implicit Judeo-Christian ethics and, and ideas and principles in them. And many of the great theorists actually were uh, had faith background of some kind, and some were even pastor's kids. Um, and then on the, on the biblical side, there is implicit psychology in scripture in different places. And so we're really recapturing something that maybe was already integrated. Right. Um, uh, centuries ago sure. and thinking about it in, in more uh, contemporary terms in some ways, but, um, but yeah, so to those who would push back, I say you, you point well taken. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but let's think about uh, how we observe Jesus interact with people. There's an awful lot in Pauline epistles that could be considered a biblical psychology in some ways. Um, so there's a lot for us to think about there. Yeah, and because you know, you mentioned uh, you know isolation is such a big um, 
challenge for pastors uh, yeah. usually caused by hurts or maybe yeah. a skewed view of the call. Um, but, uh, you know, especially those who have been, you know, in it for a long time and they've been dealing with, with congregations, like you talked about uh, congregation or uh, killers, clergy killers, and congregations. Yeah. That, um, it, you know, I think that, that the pushback I get often is, well, Jesus is supposed to be enough. And I said, yeah, but Jesus gave you a family of believers to, right. to that you can see Jesus in. And so right. we don't want to discount right. that he's using uh, people because that's how he does things to, that's right. to build one another up. And, and the challenge that a lot of pastors have, as you talk, talk about the pastoral identity 24-7, is um, another thing that we struggle with is the ambiguous job expectations. Yeah, uh, you, you know, and you and nobody realized those expectations are there until you fail to meet those expectations. That's right. And then they realize it's an expectation. Then I find people struggle with the fact that it's an expectation. And if they would pause and really think about it, they would realize it's an unfair expectation. Right. Um, and so, you know, because you'd never say in the job description, this is what I expect you to do. Right. And when you don't do it, they're like, oh, you're not doing yeah. it. So for you do it like the last pastor did it. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. No, exactly. Or, yeah, there's just a lot of. Uh, there's, uh, I have a friend that says, calls it territorial boundaries that, that you don't know until yeah. you're stepping in them, right? And that's like, right. Oh. That's exactly right. I think sometimes yeah. the church member doesn't know that they're there either until right. somebody I agree. passes in it. Uh, yeah. So, what are some of the challenges in all your research and your experience that you've been that you see facing pastors? Just maybe more currently than than yeah. Than well, certainly what what you're talking about is one which is the role complexity. And um, you know, got all the expectations from people, both written and spoken, and unwritten and unspoken. Um, and the, the research that's been done on that role complexity suggests that it is perhaps the most complex job description a person could could ever try to fill, because of the range of competencies that are needed. Um, be nice to be an expert in so many different areas. And then what are called the switching costs, which is swipping, switching rapidly between those in any given day. So from facilities management to pastoral counseling, to sermon prep, to financial management, to board meeting, to hospital visitation before you go home that night. And that's just Monday, you know, for example. Right, right. And there are just very few jobs that require that of a person. And so um, what we're finding is that one of the ways to, to cope with that is to think about strengths and passions um, and gifts and try to, to do what we call job crafting around those things at least 60% of the time over the course of say a year. Um, so there are always going to be those days or even weeks when you're doing things totally outside of your sweet spot, so to speak, that you never imagined you'd ever have to do. Nobody in seminary ever told you you were going to have to do this. And, and yet, there you are doing it. And uh, there are those days or seasons, but over the course of time, uh, if we can keep it at 60% or more, that seems to be a threshold that is helpful to people. If it gets too far below that for too long, people disengage from their work more quickly, uh, burn out more quickly, that kind of thing. Uh, we're also finding the ending on a high note is really helpful. So going back to one of the things that brings you the most joy in ministry for at least 15 to 20 minutes at the end of the workday, even if that's at 10 o'clock at night or whenever it is, um, can be really helpful as a daily practice. It, there's a positive accumulation to those daily practices when we're consistent with small steps. Uh, that really makes a big difference in the long term toward preventing burnout and promoting flourishing. 
to just stay in touch with the joy, um, even after the day when it was really difficult or that was not joy filled. Um, ending the day with with joy is a really helpful practice we're finding. Mm. Um, yeah, and, and I know you're familiar with the Barna statistics, and sometimes they they are. Um, well, you can read them through certain lenses. We'll just put it that way. But but what we have seen, especially since COVID, is an increased number of pastors that are considering uh, yeah. leaving the ministry. Now, some of the challenges, even in thinking about that for a lot of pastors, is um, they can't put pastor for 20 years on a resume and have companies you know, fighting right. to, to hire them. Yeah. Um, I find with the younger generation, I say under 30, they're, they're like, oh, I can start over. I can reinvent myself. So I think it's easier for them. Um, but for yeah. some of us old guys, it, it's like, well, this is what I do. This is right. what I love to do. But right. So I, I might think about quitting, but I don't. So now you find pastors that are stuck, um, yes. which isn't healthy either. And and yes. so, um, but what do you think is some of the main causes of this shift that we seem? Yeah. So and back to that very important question. Um, so I, I think beyond the role complexity, um, the, the conflict in church uh, nowadays is, at least in my lifetime in the United States, is beyond anything that... I think I've ever seen it's, it's always been there of course, but it just seems like during and after COVID it's been ratcheted up exponentially. And what our research tells us is it's, it's being treated with contempt by people. Um, that is the most difficult when things are so polarized politically in our, in North America right now. Um, and here we go headed into another presidential election cycle. And most every pastor I talk to is just dreading that because they're already exhausted from the, the conflict from COVID and feeling like they can't win no matter what they do or don't do, say or don't say, people are upset. And and out of that being upset, we'll just treat a pastor with just vitriolic kinds of even abusive language or or tactics um, of some kind that are are really challenging and really hurtful, especially when it's people that you have been there for in the past, you know, have have gone the extra mile for or have shepherded built relationships with you thought you know until um you're on the receiving end of that behavior and it's just really really painful even uh, I, i'm convinced actually kirk that there's a a form of post-traumatic stress that clergy experience from really really chronic and uh, sort of gnarly church conflict and abusive behavior toward them yeah, I just started uh, initially doing some research on post-traumatic stress and, and clergy, and and there's a little bit out there right now yeah. about it, and it's 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 significant. I'm mm -hmm. quite shocked at at some of the initial research. Um, I mean, it's it's with uh, you know uh, up there with veterans who had actually experienced uh, yes. combat, and right. uh, and right. it's pretty. Uh, so with all my extra time, because I have some other ideas that I want to. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but uh, yeah, so, you know, here we have this contempt idea and, and yeah, I, I see that. And they, it's almost like we go from zero to 10 very quickly now in, in yes. escalation. Of so conflict, true. Um, which wasn't before uh, we're, we're, we're in a world with all the social media where everything is reaction driven um, and not necessarily response driven because That's we right. to a, a soundbite without mm -hmm. knowing everything. And, and it seems to be acceptable now. And yes. Uh, nobody nobody fact checks really um anymore and it's, right. so we find this challenge how so how can church members um help pastors with this culture that's seems to be prevalent in our churches yeah great question um 
And I, I was going to mention too, I think one of the, one of the reasons I think we see the post-traumatic stress in clergy uh, at a similar rate in some studies to veterans is that the, what gets triggered in our brain in our, what's called our amygdala, which is the part of our brain that has our stress response uh, system that is a gift. Um, but it can get triggered when, whenever there's a sense of safety that is compromised and certainly a physical threat to our safety or, or life-threatening sort of situation, but relational safety can also trigger that. And I think that's more often the case. It depends on the context. People in urban ministry get a lot of exposure to, uh, you know, violent crime and those kinds of things. And that can be really challenging, but, um, so part of what I think people can congregations can do is learn to develop empathy for your pastor, not see them as, you know, a victim or something like that, but just understand the complexity and layers to the emotional and relational work that they do. Um, that is really daunting for anybody, no matter who you are. Um, but also uh, share the load, uh, particularly when it, when it, um, comes to conflict in the church. So um, healthier congregations that I know about have set processes in place for church conflict, for grievances from parishioners and or staff. Um, and if there's somebody who's exhibiting, you know, bullying behavior uh, in a church, then they will um, not just set the pastor up to be the one to have to always deal with that, but the, the, the system will deal with it. It's, it's sort of analogous to a um, to the immune system in the body. When it's healthy, it will surround infection mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and heal it or get rid of it somehow. Um, and it doesn't have to be the, the pastor who always does that. I'll give you a quick example. A friend of mine is a pastor of a large church in Southern California. And there was a, a wealthy um, member who was upset about something. And so he called and demanded to meet with the senior pastor. So the senior pastor met with him, met with him again, met with them, I think up to five or six times. And every time they met, the issue changed. He could never really nail down what, what was really the core issue here. It just seemed to always change. And so finally his elder board said to him, pastor, you've done more than enough. Thank you for trying to care about this guy, but um, you don't need to meet with him any longer. We will take it from here. And we will run interference for you because we trust you and believe in you. And you've, you've tried to work through this with a reasonable amount of time. Uh, so we will now handle that for you. You don't have to meet with him anymore. And that that's a healthy church that would understand that. Um, and not that the pastor doesn't have responsibility themselves to respond and not react because of course they do, but um, how can we buffer some of the conflict, at least the, the conflict that's unreasonable, out of bounds, toxic, abusive, right. um, and just not tolerate that from one another really in love. I mean, in Christian community, it'd be accountable to one another for our behavior. Yeah. And I think that that's one thing pastors look for too. Uh, and, and the, some of the research that, that um, I had done is, is that if, even if there is conflict, if people are reasonable, Yes. Uh, that that's helpful because, you know, I mean, we live in conflict and it's interesting using the body metaphor, you know, Paul uses that in his writings. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when one member rejoices, we rejoice when one member mourns, we mourn. And, yeah. and, and I think sometimes we, we put the pastor outside of that body as churches and mm -hmm. everything becomes very unilateral to where yes. 
we just come and I think, uh, you know, I've shared this before, but, um, and it's probably not the right analogy, but, but I often feel like as pastors, people come into your office and they spiritually vomit on you. And, <laughs> and then, and then they, and then you walk out smelling like that. Right. And, yeah. and you take it home and they might feel better, but they probably won't do what your suggestion is anyway. Well, yeah. sometimes, but, but the, the yeah. whole point with that is, is having somebody say, um, this is a really key thing. That empathy point is so good. Hey, pastor, I, I know that you're seems stressful right now. I just want you to know, I know that just saying that is a huge, yes, you bet. Um, and whether they can help or not is not the issue, but that helps tremendously. Just recognizing the pastor, we had a suicide a few years ago oh, um, man in our church. And, and I, I was so blessed the number of texts I got from a couple people throughout the next few weeks, just saying, Hey, we just want to make sure you're doing okay. We're praying for mm, you. Um, wow. just, just them recognizing yeah. that, um, it, it was huge, uh, just yeah. huge for me. And so I think that that it's one of those things it's and and so my my study and my work and then the little book that i wrote uh very simple i mean it's not it's not rocket science uh i always say pastors aren't very complicated people because we're extremely <laughs> insecure so it doesn't take much right so yeah uh so anyway well, you're right uh, yeah. i mean you maybe what prompted memory i've thought of in a long time was my my pastor from in my childhood who i just adore um I remember a sermon he preached toward the end of his time uh, as he was headed toward the college presidency. And, and he said to the congregation in, in love, I I've been here for almost 20 years and, you know, been in the office for every conceivable kind of crisis you can imagine and or complaint about every conceivable thing in the church, you know, over those 20 years, he said, I realize I, I can't remember a single time, when someone just stopped by to confess the goodness of God in their lives and how grateful they were for this Christian community and that kind of thing. And um, I mean, you could hear an audible gasp, you know, cause everybody felt badly about that. And he wasn't trying to make everybody feel guilty. He was just saying, let's, let's also share the positive stuff, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so doing that for your pastor, when, when there are wonderful things happening in your life as a believer, um, because of involvement in Christian community, uh, whether the pastor is directly or indirectly responsible for that, doesn't matter. Just encourage them, send them those notes, especially when difficult seasons are happening. Um, and just to rejoice in the Lord together can be a really huge boost. Yeah. I mean, the reality is, again, we're, we're pastors try to do uh, things to make eternal uh, ramifications, right? Everything we That's do right. is is based upon, I want to see you in heaven. Uh, I right. want to see your friends in heaven, your loved ones in heaven. I want to see you be, um, to use quotes, successful yeah. in your Christian life or victor victorious in your Christian yeah. life. And and I want you to trust Jesus more. And and if you never hear that the, that people are actually doing that, um, right. it can be very, very discouraging. It's one of those things, even when we have, you know, in our church, we have we say prayers for people that are in our mm -hmm. our bulletin all the time, and yes, of course. And, you know, sometimes you're you seem like you're praying praying for these people for months, and you have no idea what's going on. And so when when you when you find that report, hey, they're they're doing well now. They don't want they don't need to be on the prayer report anymore. Yeah. Just making sure that we tell people and rejoice, yes. hey, your prayers work. Yeah. Um, and so pa it works the same with pastors. You know, hey, thank you, you for your work. <laughs> you know. Yeah. If you stop by to spiritually vomit in a crisis, then please circle back and let us know you're doing better. You know, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Circle yeah. back with some. The, uh, 
oxyclean. Anyway, sorry, no. That's right. That's right. The you know the other thing I was thinking about in this conversation that I think churches can do. Um, I, I'm amazed at how many churches have you know pastoral staff and other staff, none of whom actually have a written job description. Um, and you can go too far in in that direction where it feels like you're, you know, in a very corporate kind of model. And, and as you mentioned before, the church is a different different thing qualitatively altogether. However, having some kind of covenantal understanding about what are what's God calling this particular congregation to in this season? What are the priorities as a church? How do the strength-based job descriptions, how should the pastor be emphasizing their time? What should they be doing with most of their time? And then we put people around that, volunteers, other paid staff who have complementary strengths, um, and have some kind of agreed upon covenant among leadership. It can be really helpful because then when somebody comes and complains to me, well, why aren't you doing A, B, and C? Well, here, we've got this whole strategic plan, you know, where we've decided together that I'm not going to emphasize that. And that's why we have this other person doing that. And doesn't mean all the criticism goes away, certainly, but right. it's helpful to have a shared understanding of what what are the priorities. Yeah. And especially multi-staff um, organiza uh, church organizations, it's good to have clear lanes defined. Yeah. Um, and, and that's good for the, for, for the staff member too. Uh, yes. You know, so that they're not because again, you know, I mean, we get pulled every which way. Uh, you know, they need to have a class in seminary on on plumbing and, and electricity. <laughs> That's right. Other things and landscape. Really should. No, you're absolutely right. It was yeah. just a few weeks ago. It's funny. I, I I get this email. Uh, I guess it was Sunday morning. I it was either late Saturday night or Sunday morning, uh, saying, "Hey, just so you know, it was really cold in the sanctuary, and it was like you know." 20 degrees outside. And so I'm like, okay. And, um, and we have a properties committee, but I'm the one that gets, sure. uh, you know, of course. And, and it was funny because I was, I'm like, okay, Lord, you know, I don't know. Uh, but I walk in and the batteries just need to be changed on the thermostat. And I'm like, uh, and so I look like a hero. It was wonderful. And right, I haven't right, been yeah. preached yet. So it was good. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Man, if everything were that easy to yeah. Yeah, address, like, oh, right? but, it's like whenever something happened on the soundboard when I was doing music ministry for years and the sound guy would call me back. I'm like, okay, I know maybe a little more than the sound yep. guy, but not. <laughs> and yep. so, oh, it's just this button. Well, and, <laughs> you know what that makes me think of, Kirk, is it in, in the research I've been a part of now stumbled across a, an occupational stress theory. So there, there are psychologists, social scientists who just study job stress kind of in general, you know, across lots of different kinds of jobs. And one of the theories that I came across is called demand control theory, which basically says this, if you have certain kinds of high demands in certain kinds of ways in a job, all of which map onto pastoral ministry, I think really well. So long hours, lots of uh, different areas of expertise, you're switching rapidly in between, like we talked about, um, all kinds of hidden expectations and just kind of goes down the list. And then you have low control in certain kinds of ways um, also many of which map well onto pastoral ministry. Um, it's a recipe for certain kinds of stress-related physical health issues and, and burnout and depression. And I think it's just funny to me how, how sometimes people have this perception that pastors control everything, you yeah. know, that you have this pastoral Harry Potter wand, you know, and you can control everything from the weather to, I don't know, you name it. And, yeah. And so the demands are high, but actually what you can actually control is actually pretty low. 
really low, yeah. really. Um, and uh, it's in some ways, it, unless we kind of address both sides of that to some extent with boundaries on the demand side and maybe with, with theological perspective and some other things on the control side, um, it's, it's a recipe for um, a really tough job. Yeah. And one thing that, that I think it, that is important for pastors to know, um, I, I've learned what I think is, is the art of saying, I, I don't know, it's not my skill set. <laughs> uh, and being okay with that, yeah. Uh, you know, you're going to have to, somebody else has to step up because I, I, I don't know how to fix this. Now, if I can, yeah. I'm going to fix it. But um, I know my, I've, I've become keenly aware of my limitations with certain yes. things. Uh, um, I'm not a, I'm not real handy yeah. with a hammer. Um, yeah. So, you know, I can hit things, but it's not always going to be what you want yeah. hit. So. <laughs> and that's, that's really a key thing. Um, cultivating that self-acceptance that you're describing there, where I've sort of come to terms with, here's what I'm really gifted in and strong in. Here's what I'm not very good at. And, I've taken some proactive steps to make sure that out of my, you know, less developed areas, no harm is done or it doesn't undermine the mission of our congregational life together, that sort of thing. I, do you mind if I share a quick story about that that comes to mind? So when I was in seminary, I was brand new on a pastoral staff and like in my first month or something, you know, so really, really green, if you will, in, in the role. And had an incredible mentor who's still a dear friend of mine, married my wife and I, and, and uh, he'd been at this church for about 20 years as the executive pastor. And it was a Sunday morning. We just had this phenomenal worship service, amazing time, you know, that you just pray for kind of beyond your, your hopes, you know, for uh, a time like that. And we're kind of basking in the joy of that after the service is over, standing in front of the sanctuary talking and this... <clears throat> um, lady from the church came up and she she was one of the older adults there who came with the building as they say you know she'd been there forever as long as anybody could remember and she came up and just started to lay into him and just you know really be hypercritical and 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 I felt myself getting angry and I I think my face probably I even got flushed and I, I was ready to like tangle with this lady like you want to fight you know let's dance you know kind of a thing and I look over at, at my mentor and he's totally unanxious calm. He just let her go. And at some point he said, you know, is that all? And there was more. So she kind of went a little bit longer and spilled some of that. And he, he said to her, you know, I want to thank you for your obvious care for this church. It's you're as passionate as you are. It's obvious to me, you care deeply. And I want you to know we have that in common. I love this place. I've given the best years of my life to this community. So we, we both love this place. And you're absolutely right. I'm not good at A, B, and C. I wish I was too. Never been my gifts. That's why we have Pastor Chris and these other staff and lay leaders in place. And here's where I'm uh, accountable to growing in those areas and these relationships in my life. I'd like for you to pray for me that I'll continue to grow. Hmm. And she didn't know what to do with that. <laughs> totally disarmed her. Yeah. And then at some point in the conversation, he said, and I also need to say, uh, some of what you have shared, I don't think is mine to own. And I need to ask that you never speak to me that way again, because it was disrespectful and hurtful. Um, but I'd like to help you understand why you are speaking to me that way. And it ended up in a pastoral counseling kind of conversation. And I think a referral to counseling and medication in that particular situation, as I recall, which was an appropriate thing. Um, 
masterfully handled. Then we went to lunch and I'm, I'm like still ticked for like the next hour and a half. And sure. he, he was free yeah, yeah, because he had done his own work over the years in spiritual direction and his own therapy. And he knew himself well and had come to accept himself. Mm. And it, it took a lot of the power out of the criticism um, when he could say, I've, we've already thought all that through. Right, right. Well, and what's good, what you, what's nice about what you share about that, because I don't want uh, any pastors who listen to this to go, well, that's how I have to be. He didn't do that. He didn't, didn't get there overnight. Uh, right. You know, it, right. it took some time to get there because, you know, like I said, it's exactly right. It's a process. Yeah. I have yeah. this pastor friend that says, again, that, that pastors are the most uh, insecure people. Um, and so when people come at you like that, inwardly, you're like, I totally agree with you. I already feel bad about this. And so now you're just making it feel worse. And, right. and, and being able to recognize like this, this uh, man did that. Yeah, you're right. I've known that for a while and I've learned that I'm okay with that, you know, and I don't have to be everything. So um, that's great. So what kind of, just kind of wrapping things up here. I mean, I think you've given us so much valuable stuff and we could probably talk stories for a long time. Um, Absolutely. Right? Um, but in your experience, um, both, you know, in the ministry, but also especially as your expertise, uh, because I find you to be, and I don't know if anybody else, but when I was doing my research, um, you know, four or five years ago for my dissertation, um, your name and Dr. Ray Jean Preshel Bell from Duke Clergy Health Initiative seemed to seem to find their way a lot in articles and and mentions. And so um, I kind of look at, at uh, so if anybody doesn't know Dr. Chris Adams, uh, I, I consider him one of the leaders in our nation and in, in, in pastor mental health and health and oh, care. So um, anyway, I'm not trying to blow smoke up anything. I just, uh, uh, you know, it's one of those things that I want in the preface to this question. You're not, we're not asking somebody who doesn't know a whole lot. We're asking somebody who actually studied this and lived it, which I think is very valuable. Mm -hmm. uh, what are some tips that you might have? And you kind of mentioned one earlier, doing the thing that gives you joy at the end of the day. Yeah. Uh, what are some tips to help pastors with their positive mental health? Yeah, great. So I, I think the the thing that we're finding in, in, sort of the face of a lot of the contemptuous, um, what, what one author calls presumptive criticism, which is, I know better than you do, Pastor, how to do your job, and I'm going to feel enormous freedom to tell you that and everybody else uh, for some reason. Um, what, what we believe to be true from the research is that uh, cultivating self-awareness and kind of emotional self-regulation kinds of competencies, very similar, if not identical to the concept of emotional intelligence, if your readers are familiar with that. So yeah. we've, we've talked for decades about IQ, but there's now conversation about what's called EQ, yeah. which yeah. really is, is based on growing self-awareness. And I'm aware of what I'm doing, thinking and feeling, and what impact that is having on me and other people. Um, if any of your listeners have ever seen a Christian leader with very little self-awareness and yet in a position of power in a faith community that tends to not go very well over time. So cultivating that self-awareness and then out of that, being able to reflect on um, what am I carrying? What am I, what's getting activated in me and why? And let me then respond instead of react with self-control, which of course is a fruit of the spirit we're created for. Um, and we can all grow. We all maybe start in a different point in that based on genetics and our family of origin formation and lots of things. Uh, but we can all grow and be intentional about cultivating that self-awareness uh, is a really significant thing. 
Um, the other one I might say is we mentioned this at the very beginning. It is important to play and have fun. Um, it's important to have what a friend of mine calls holy detachment. And I love that phrase. She's a like spiritual that. director. Yeah. Um, and what we found is that a, a minimum of 20 minutes a week doing something that meets these three criteria is can be really a helpful practice that you enjoy doing just for the sheer enjoyment of the activity. Um, it's, it's playful. You have some skill in doing it and it, it can be developing skill, but um, something that you're, you know, you've got some mastery over and that takes your full concentration to do it. And that's the big one because what is so often the case uh, for many of us, I would include myself in this is we can be, practicing Sabbath or taking our time off, but we're still working in our head. Yeah. Um, the sermon's always percolating mm -hmm. back there. You know, um, I, I'm preaching next week at a chapel here. And, and I realized last night as I'm watching TV and taking downtime, quote unquote, I was actually doing sermon prep, you know, in the back of my mind. Um, and so to do something that takes your full attention means we take a mental break as well as a physical break from ministry work. And, what we know from the, the research on uh, occupational health is that when we do take a break like that, we come back to the same work with exponentially higher creativity, productivity, efficiency than if we hadn't detached. Yeah. And so it actually is doing something for uh, the effectiveness of that sermon and all the other responsibilities pastors have to, to take a break and, and allow ourselves to be renewed in some way. So having a hobby, play, a, a restorative niche is what some authors call that, um, is a really, really important practice. Well, that's good. You know, self-control. Yes, it's a fruit of the spirit. It's also one of the components of positive mental health, uh, how yeah. one regulates their emotions. And so it's always fun when when science actually supports what the Bible has already told that's us. Right. That's exactly oh. right. Thanks. Almost as if God created us and knows how we work, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Chris, thank you so much. I just appreciate your time. Uh, just beneficial stuff. Uh, if you haven't checked out Flourishing in Ministry, um, please do so. It's just flourishinginministry.org. Is that correct? That's correct. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Please please check out our downloadable resources and, and all kinds of things there. And if you haven't downloaded the app, uh, do so. It's great. I'm looking forward to the, the 2.0 version. It's always better, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> anyway, so again, if you find this beneficial, please like and share and subscribe. Also, contact information will be um, in the comments. Also, the, the website to Flourishing in Ministry. So you can check it out for yourself. Um, but again, together, we can build one another up in love and help the church flourish. Thanks, Chris. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.